is the day where Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem triumphant. And they're actually, they're actually welcoming him as a conquering king. What's going on is exactly what you would do with a conquering king that came in after a, a mighty victorious battle. That's the thing you would do. And so here comes Jesus in with great fanfare, and there's a huge crowd, and they're taking palm branches, and they're waving it, hence the name Palm Sunday. They're waving palm branches. They're laying them in the road. They're putting their coats down on the road, and it really is a royal type of red carpet treatment for Jesus as he's riding in. Now, those who weren't real fans of Jesus, they weren't really interested in this. And so they said, we got to shut this party down. And they tried. They told the disciples. That didn't work. They went to Jesus. They're trying to shut this thing down, but it doesn't work. And so finally, I love what they're saying. They said, basically, this is it. Forget it. See how the whole world has gone after him. Now, don't we wish that were true, that the whole world had gone after Jesus? Uh, But apparently, the crowd was so massive that that was a proper choice of words. Look how the whole world has gone after him. And they're, they're chanting and singing And they're saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, Hosanna is a a word of of affirmation, adoration, of praise, of celebration. And uh, Hosanna actually means uh, grant us salvation or save us. So they're calling out to Jesus and they're saying, and this, by the way, in this context, it's not a, oh, everything's awful, please save us, we're all beat down. But they're saying, wow, you're conquering king. You're our savior. You can save us. And so it's a very celebratory kind of thing. We, we praise you, grant us salvation, and save us. Now, most likely, the people who were saying that were looking at Jesus as a conquering king. And that they wanted to be saved from the, the oversight of Rome. And they wanted to be a sovereign nation again. But they're actually recognizing him as the Messiah. And, and you may say, where in the world did you get that from? From this phrase that said, blessed, uh, or Hosanna to the son of David. Now, that is a, a Hebrew phrase that the Jewish people would know was a messianic prophecy. Now, that's just a big couple words for basically God said, in the future, here is going to be something that's going to symbolize and show the Messiah the Savior, the Christ. And so it's a messianic prophecy. And the prophecy was this. God told David, he said, there will always be a king from your lineage, from your family tree on the throne. And so when the Hebrews heard something, the Jewish people, son of David, that was a reference to a Messiah, a a Savior. And so they have called him son of David. And and the prophecy is true. Jesus is the last king that's going to sit on the throne. And he sits on that throne, and he's from the lineage and the household of David. Even uh, naturally, Mary was of the lineage of David, uh, Jesus' stepdad, so to speak, Joseph, because Jesus was born by the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph was of the lineage of David as well. So we see that there's, they're recognizing Jesus as king. Now again, they probably want him to usurp authority over the Romans. Let's push the Romans out. We can have our sovereign nation back. We don't have to be ruled by anybody. We don't have to get permission to do stuff. We're going to be the Jewish nation again. One thing that tripped up so many people is that, remember Jesus said this, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not of this world. 
which does frustrate us at times because we want Jesus to fix our world around us, you know. And he says, my kingdom's not of this world. And so here is, is Jesus, the king. He's riding triumphant. And he wants to be that Hosanna, that Savior, that Messiah, the one who saves us and rescues us. And now, again, the Jews thought of a political system. Uh, sometimes we think of natural things. Sometimes we think of spiritual things. I think there's something in our hearts that all of us would like to be saved from eternal judgment. I mean, if you do think, if you pause for a moment and say, I really do believe there is a God and that I really will stand before him, then I think all of us would want to say, I'd like to stand before him in good standing. So I'd like to avoid eternal judgment. I would like to receive eternal blessing. I would like to have eternal life. You know, those are things that we want. But we also know just in the world around us, y'all have noticed that it is a broken world, right? It's, it's a broken, sin-sick world. And so we're affected by that and often afflicted by that. And we even look around sometimes in our circumstances and say, Lord, Hosanna, save us from this. Save us from this circumstance, from this trial, from this brokenness of the world. And Jesus wants to. He wants to save us from as much brokenness as we will allow him to save us from. And we see Jesus' heart for humanity, actually. But in Luke 13, Jesus is approaching Palm Sunday, and he's sorrowing over Jerusalem. And he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as, hen gathers, as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were, does anybody know the next two words? You were not willing. So we see the willingness of God. I want to gather you under my wings, but you were not willing. This is a few days as we're approaching Palm Sunday, but on Palm Sunday, the Bible declares a few chapters later in Luke, in Luke 19, 41 and 42, as he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace... What would bring you peace? Oftentimes, we're God's biggest obstacle. He wants to do things in our life. We're not willing. We don't recognize that he's the one that wants to bring us peace. What happens is, is we want all these good things, but we have a conflict on how to get there. It goes all the way back to the garden. Adam and Eve, here's some options. How am I going to get there? And they looked at the fruit, and they said, ooh, it looks like it's desirable, for food, to make one wise, to do all these different things. And they chose a path that wasn't God's path. Now, here's something you and I are forever learning, but I want to make sure we at least move forward in it today. God is the creator of life. Jesus is the creator of life. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life. So he has a plan for us to have life. And so we want life. I mean, if you actually, the Amplified Bible says this. Jesus said, I have come that you might enjoy a rich and satisfying life. Who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want that? But then it becomes, how am I going to get that? And so we think, I'm going to get it my way. But honestly, do you know anyone, including yourself or people you know, who decided I'm not going to go after God, I'm going to go after sin, my flesh, my carnality, I'm going to go after oh, the lust of my eyes, the lust of my flesh, the pride of life, who ends up at a place where they go, wow, my life is wonderful. And we don't know anybody like that. We... 
they may feel like they're getting that way, but then one day they realize, wow, the bottom fell out and life doesn't work like this. That's because Jesus designed life. He doesn't want to steal life from you. He wants to give you life. And he came that you might have life. And he says, if you'd follow my way of doing life, you would really be blessed. So on this Palm Sunday, we're crying out, Hosanna, bring us salvation. Deliver us. Help us. Now, again, we're often a big obstacle to that process. But today I want to kind of move ourselves out of the way. And oftentimes what stops us is, is condemnation. I won't ask for a show of hands, but anybody ever feel condemnation or feel condemned? Uh, shame? Guilt? Regret? Remorse? All those things just pile up on us and they kind of rob us of life? Well, our great deliverer, our great Messiah wants to free us from those things and has a wonderful plan for doing it that we're going to look at today so we can be free from those things. God's designed us to be able to live in faith, to be able to pray in faith, to have confidence. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We've been on the topic of prayer. On this Palm Sunday, I want us to see how can Jesus be our Messiah, our Savior, and how can he help develop a confidence in us so we can pray with confidence. We need to pray with confidence, and we need to live with confidence. Jesus comes to save us. Now, salvation is a really big word. In, in fact, uh, it, here's a definition from it, from a book with a really big title. Baker's Evangelical Dictionary of Biblical Theology. You can barely get that on the cover of the book. And if a Bible definition of the word salvation is right here out of the bakers, to save, help in distress, rescue, deliver, set free. And the Bible also uses salvation to denote health, well-being, and healing. That's a big word. If you ask most people, what's salvation? They would say, oh, salvation is I'm saved from my sins and I get to have eternal life with Jesus. First of all, if that was all it was, that would be awesome, wouldn't it? That would be incredible. But God says the word's even bigger than that. It breaks into our life right now. Paul told that to Timothy. He said godliness is profitable now in this life and in the life to come. So a walk with Jesus isn't just about someday in the future. You know, it'll be okay right now. Serving Jesus is awful. But, you know, one day it'll be okay to serve the Lord because we'll be in heaven. No, it's wonderful right now. And so we want to learn to pray with confidence. So we're going to look at 1 John chapter 3. And we're going to look, we're going to theme around this concept of having this confidence that Jesus will be our Savior, the one who sets us free and delivers us from guilt, shame, all those things so we can have confidence. And 1 John 3, and I don't know, I just like bits of information, so I'll pass it along. Some of you go, oh, that's interesting. Others of you yawn through it. So, you know, if it fits and you like it, that's fine. John was a beloved disciple of Jesus. In the beginning of your New Testament, there are four books often called the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And John wrote the Gospel of John. And we, we know the famous verse, John 3.16, for God so loved the world. But when you move towards the back of your New Testament, you find these three little books. They're actually letters written by John called 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. But just so... For the record, these aren't three Johns that they're going, okay, there's first John. Say, no, this, this is three letters written by John, the beloved disciple. And so we're looking at 1 John 3, 16 through 24. And I always warn you because 
Man, we're getting crazy here today. We're going to read like eight verses. I know, I know, we're going to really dig in. But we're not even done. We're going to read some more. So let's look at this. This is just so powerful. I want us to get this broad picture so we can push it in and narrow in. But I want to see what God's saying here. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. When the Bible says brothers and sisters in the New Testament, it's talking about Christians. Our brothers and sisters in Christ, the household of God. Now, we know that God wants us to do good to everyone, and the Bible actually says this. I want you to do good to everyone, but especially to those of the household of faith. Especially do good to your brothers and sisters in Christ. And so here, he's talking about believers. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Man, that's an un-American verse. You know, because in America we say, well, bless God, I got mine my way, and you can get yours your way, and I got mine, you got yours, and you ain't got much, and I got a lot, so that's just the way it is. But here God says we ought to love our brothers and sisters, and we see someone in need, and we have the ability to help, but we don't even have pity on them. We don't help. How is the love of God in us? See, John's talking about the God kind of love. Now, I know, trust me, Money is an idol. And I know money can get a hold of you. And even in the Bible, it's often called mammon with a capital M because there's a spirit behind. I'm very serious about this. There's a demonic spirit behind material possession and money, if not handled correctly, that it becomes an idol in our lives. And we can't let go of it. And we fall in love with it, and we just want more and more and more and more. And the Bible says the eyes of man are never satisfied. If, if you, a rich man's never satisfied, always, always going to get more. So we have to pause and say, hold it, everything I have belongs to him. But I, I know how this works. So we say, well, yeah, but these people, I know I could help them, but I know they're my brothers and sisters in Christ, but, you know, they made their own mess. Okay, let me make this clear. Ninety. This is an unofficial statistic, but I'd say 95% of the time when you and I are in a mess of any kind, we created it. Most of the time. So if we're going to say, I'm not going to help anyone unless they're in a problem that they got there nobly. Okay. When do you ever run into somebody where you say, wow, I can't believe they're struggling financially because uh, they're hard workers, they... They, they manage their money well, they manage their life well, they steward their money, they, they don't overspend, they have, they have saved properly, they've done everything right. How many people do you know who's done everything right financially who are in a financial mess? Almost none. Now, it does happen at times where something catastrophic comes along, but if you're waiting for that one person to help who something catastrophic came along, you may never find that person. So, we're to be people who help people. Now, I, it's real quiet in here, um, but we're supposed to... We're supposed to help people. So we see people in need and we help them. Now there's another passage where it says this, if you see your brother or sister in need and you can help them and you just say, be warm, be blessed, be filled, what good does that do? Like for instance, let's say at the end of the service you were talking to somebody and they only have food to feed their family and you say, hey, can I pray for you but I got to do it fast because me and my 10 family members are getting ready to go to a steakhouse and I can, I can... I can taste that filet mignon, that twice-baked potato, that beautiful 
vegetable medley, and, and I'm even going to have me a piece of pecan pie when I'm done. And so, so anyway, I need to pray for you fast. Lord Jesus, bless them, help them to have plenty to eat today, and uh, I'm going to go on. If you have no pity, how's the love of God in you? How, how is that? And so we had to be very sensitive to make sure that we are people who, uh, you can find 101 excuses not to help people. Let's look for some to help people. Okay, one more. We always believe it's the person richer than us that needs to help, right? I mean, I don't have much. So there's a day in your life where you say, I only got $5. $5 can make a difference for someone. Then you prosper a little more and you say, well, I can't help anybody. I only got 20 bucks. And then you prosper a little more and you say, well, I can't help anybody. I only got 100 bucks. You ever buy $100 at the grocery store? You carry it out in one bag. That ain't going to help anybody. Well, how can I help anybody? I only got 250 bucks. You know, you see what's happening? You're always, but there's somebody richer than me that can take care of them. So we all need to learn to help whatever level we're on and to practice being generous people. Okay, that wasn't my message today, so we'll get back on here. From the sound of things, though, I think we need to hear that. Okay, let's move on. Not the sound of amens and praise the Lord either. The, the sound of silence. Okay, okay. So then it goes on to say this. Dear children, let us not love with words and speech, but with what? Actions and in truth. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. Now, I know I'm doing some peripheral stuff. You may say, I think we're getting off topic. We're not because it's all moving in here together. So this is how we set our hearts at rest. How? Well, let's pay attention to what we're reading. How do I set my heart at rest? Because my heart wants to condemn me. Because you and I have all done plenty enough wrong stuff that we got, we got a, a boatload of condemnation we could walk in. And so we have to say, hold it, but how, why is my heart going to be at rest? Because I love God and I love people. And not just with lift surf, service, but with my action. And so my heart begins to be at rest in the Lord's presence. And let's read on. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts because he knows everything. So again, if you're here today and you say, I got condemnation, I got guilt, I got uh, shame, I got all that. God's bigger than that. He's bigger than our hearts. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, now we're narrowing in here. If our hearts do not condemn us, we have what? Confidence. We have confidence before God. Not arrogance, not holier than thou, confidence. We have confidence before God. Wow, you ready for this one? And receive from him anything we ask. Now, that'd be nice, but there's a comma there, so there's more that follows. We receive from him anything we ask. Why? Because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. Now, if we stopped right there, we'd all probably say, oh, okay, well, there's where I, I'm, I'm missing it. I mean, I can't keep all these commands. I mean, there's a book full of them, and there's I don't know how many commands to keep. And, and I forget, I used to remember, like, the Jewish people had, like, 133 or something commands. And so you got all these commands. Of course, Christians have all kinds of commands. We've got to keep all these commands. But God's going to tell us what commands to keep. So if you're going, I don't know if I could keep all these commands. Well, here's the commands. Are you ready? That's why it pays, pays to keep reading. And this is his command. We're supposed to keep his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. There's the command. Back about a year ago, I was on this almost every week, it seemed like it'd come up, bubble up in me. 
some sincere, good-hearted people went to Jesus and said, we, we want to go after God. What must we do to do the works that God requires? What were they asking? What are the commands we have to do? And Jesus said this, here's the work you must do. Believe in the one he has sent. That was it. Believe in the one he has sent. That's what he's saying here. Believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and to love one another as he commanded us. There's your commands. It really goes back to something else Jesus said. Jesus, what's the most important commandment? He said the most important commandment is this. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind, and all your strength. And there's another command like it. Love your neighbor like you love yourself. All the law, all the prophets, all the rules, all the regulations are contained in these two commands. Love God with all you got. Love your neighbor like you love yourself. There it is. John, who was loved Jesus deeply, learned that lesson well because he's reteaching it to us right here. Love Jesus and love one another. The one who keeps God's commands, which we just read what they were, lives in him and he in them. And this is how we know he lives in us. We know it by the spirit, the Holy Spirit he has given us. What a beautiful set of verses. Did you catch the power of the heart that's competent? Did you catch the power of the heart that's not moved by guilt and condemnation and shame and regret and remorse and fear and all that? The heart that's competent, they get to ask God and get what they ask for. Now, we do understand this. I don't have to preach a three-part series on this. God's not a genie in a lamp. You know, we could read that and be moved by greed and go, okay, good. Well, well, I want palatial mansions dotted around the globe. I want a fleet of jets and yachts and and servants and yada, yada, yada. No, we're, we're not talking about that. But the things that we should pray for, we can have confidence that we receive them from the Lord. We have to have confidence. We have to have confidence because God's word says we have to. In James chapter 1, the brother of Jesus, I always love what I heard Andy Stanley say one time, just every time I say James, I think about that, the brother of Jesus. He said to me, James is the number one reason to believe that Jesus is the savior of the world. Here's what he said. What would it take you to convince your brother or sister that you're the Messiah, the savior of the world? James's brother got convinced. My brother Jesus is the savior of the world. Man, if you can convince a sibling that you're that, then you must really be that. He's the savior of the world. And James tells in James chapter 1, if you pray in doubt and unbelief, don't think you'll receive anything from the Lord. We're to pray with confidence. Now, where are we going to get this confidence? Well, we've kind of dabbled into it there. I guess there's one way that a lot of people say, here's how I'm going to be confident. I am going to live a life that's flawless. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to live impeccable. I'm never going to make a mistake. I'm never going to commit a sin. I'm 100% all the time going to do what I'm supposed to do. And I'm 100% all the time not going to do what I'm not supposed to do. And so I'm going to have confidence because... I am going to live an impeccable, flawless, perfect, sinless life in my actions, in my thoughts, and in my words. Now I want to ask for a show of hands, but how many of you think option one works for you? Okay, me either. You know, I'm looking at that going, okay. 
that, that's out. So how am I going to have confidence before God? But that's how we base our confidence, isn't it? By our behavior. Now, please understand this. I'm not advocating poor behavior. Are you with me? I'm not saying, let's just go sin it up, man, because it does not matter. Those who have this hope within him want to purify themselves, the Bible says. They want to live right. But have you ever noticed that you wanted to do right and didn't do it? I mean, you may not, but the person beside you is totally guilty. I'll guarantee you that. They have, they have not done it. But we, so we want to do what's good, but we don't always do it. So if I can't be flawless, impeccably flawless in word and thought and in action, then how am I going to be confident? Because we base our confidence usually off our behavior. I mean, think about if you're vying for a job at work, a promotion. What, do you, what makes you confident? You look at your behavior and say, I think I'm going to get that because, because this happened in my department. My department doubled its sales and, and we haven't had any turnover and we've cut costs. You know what I mean? You look at your behavior. You look at your circumstance you create. You say, I'm a shoe-in for this. And you get some confidence because of your behavior. That doesn't work with God. Now, let me tell you why that doesn't work with God. Because he's flawless. He's holy. He's impeccable. He, he exists in, in an unapproachable light that he's that holy. There's no approaching God except through Jesus. There's no approaching him by behavior. We can't do behavior well enough to qualify. So, well, is there an option too? Thankfully, there is. It all comes from out of giving our lives to Jesus and being born again. And so here's some options. I'm going to uh, clip through some chapters and verses pretty quick, but I, there's going to be a slide that's going to show where they came from. So you can take a picture of it or write it down or later in the day get on Facebook and look at that slide and, and see what it is. So, so here's option number two. We can believe what God says about us. We can believe what God says about us. That sounds so easy, but it really takes some focus to believe what God says about us. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, a guy named Paul writes to this Corinthian church, which, by the way, Corinth was a very, very worldly, carnal, fleshly, sinful culture, as was Rome and, and most cultures, by the way. But some seem a little cleaner than others. Corinth was not a clean culture at all in their morality or ethics. And so he tells these Corinthians, hey, if anyone is in Christ... They are a new creation, a new creature. Listen to what he says. The old is gone and the new has come. And God's not counting sin against you anymore. You've been reconciled with God. And you know what else he says? You have been made the righteousness of God in Christ. You didn't earn that. You've been made that. Jesus, that passage is going to say, Jesus took all of our sins, was Jesus a sinner? No. He took our sins. Our sins were, you know, the big word we like to say, was imputed, was placed upon him. And just like our sins were placed upon him, he did not deserve that at all, his righteousness was placed upon us. Oh, we didn't deserve it at all, but his righteousness was placed upon us. Why? We got a great God. You know, I, I just don't know. I, I know I'm sit on one side of the line where I just have so loved Jesus and enjoyed him that just boggles my mind that people aren't racing uh, to know Jesus. So anyway, here it is. 
He says, the old's gone, the new has come. About five chapters later, he writes in 2 Corinthians, that we need to line up our thought life with Jesus and what Jesus says. That builds confidence. Because you may go to pray, and oh, the, the devil will bring up anything, and your conscience will bring up anything, to make sure you have no confidence in your prayer life. And so you may start to pray or start to do something for God, and you'll hear in your head, uh, I don't know who you think you are, you know, you're, you're horrible. Your past is this, and, and uh, you're, you're good for nothing. Well, what you're supposed to do, according to 2 Corinthians 10, is you're supposed to take that thought, and you're to offer it to Jesus. And you're to say, Jesus, would you examine this thought? I just had this thought that I'm unworthy, and I'm good for nothing, and that you would never want to answer my prayers or use me in any way. What do you think about that? And Jesus will say, it's a lie. It's a lie. You are righteous in me you are fearfully and wonderfully made your sins are no longer being held against you 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 are you are a child of God you're an heir of God and a joint heir of mine Jesus will say that is a lie and so we had to bring those thoughts to Jesus and receive those another thing that same guy writes to the Philippians is he says this we forget our past and we press towards our future. We forget our past and we press towards our future. See, your past will condemn you. And frankly, your past just may be two hours old. You may be sitting here and thinking, oh, Lord, this morning at breakfast, oh, I wish I could rewind the clock. So your past, you know, it may not have to go back 30 years. So maybe 30 minutes, 30 days, 30 years ago, your past wants to condemn you. But Jesus said again, if anyone is in Christ, the old is gone, and the new has come. The new has come. So Paul said, listen carefully, this guy was probably like the champion of the Christian world. And he said this, listen to me, my Philippian friends. I have not arrived. I don't have it all. I'm not doing it all. Everything's not perfect, but I do have this thing going for me. I've forgotten my past and I'm pressing towards my future in Jesus. You hear this every time I mention this verse. My suspicion is, is that either Satan or his conscience was constantly whispering in Paul's mind because Paul, was, Paul hated Christianity. He was a, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He wanted to crush Christianity. He believed it was a cult. He believed it was a false religion. He wanted to crush that thing. And so in the book of Acts, there's a, a young man named Stephen who makes a public declaration of his faith in Jesus and tells why Jesus is the Savior of the world. And Paul held the coats of those because they want to take off their coats so they can have their throwing arms clear. They stoned Stephen to death. And the Bible says his face shone like an angel. Uh, here's sweet Stephen. He was murdered. Paul approved of that murder, held the coats of those who murdered him, was given documents of authority to go in prison, do whatever he could to crush Christianity, and he was on that journey. And he declares himself, even before he was a believer, as a Pharisee, he said, I was zealous above my brothers. I, and he was zealous to stamp out Christianity. But he encounters, this will get you, he encounters the risen Jesus, whom we're going to celebrate next week. Well, we're celebrating him today, but we're going to celebrate the resurrection next week. And he encounters the resurrected Jesus, and he changes from this opponent to Jesus to this proponent of Jesus. And so he becomes a church planner all over his little known world there. And this is my suspicion. I have a feeling that he was just like me and you when he went to pray, 
when he went to do something for God, I have a feeling he heard this in his mind. You call yourself a Christian. Do you think God could use you? Remember sweet Stephen? Remember his angelic face? Well, you watched your Pharisee brothers stone him to death and you gave it a thumbs up. Remember the families you separated, those you imprisoned, and you call yourself a Christian? I believe there's one day where he had to draw a line in the sand and said, this one thing I know, I have forgotten my past, and I'm pressing towards this future in Jesus. I doubt your past is as bad as Paul's. A murderer of Christians. I can hear the enemy whisper in his ear, even a sweet, kind, loving Stephen was wrong. Did he deserve to be murdered? You approved of his murdering. And he had to shake that off and say, hold it. You know that guy? Listen to me. This is, this is a biblical revelation that could change your life. You know that guy, Satan, you're talking about, who approved of the murder of Stephen? He doesn't live anymore. He's dead. And Paul said this, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. But the life I do live, I live by the faith of the Son of God. That's where he got his confidence from. Not from his behavior as past, but from Jesus. And then, of course, we just read in 1 John 3.20 that God's bigger than our hearts. So we need to bury those truths in us, and we need to bury these truths as we come toward the close. Now, don't get real excited, but we are moving that direction. Hebrews 10, Hebrews 10, 19 through 23. Hebrews 10 was written to, to, to Jewish Christians. These were people who were Hebrews, Israelites, Jews, uh, and they were Christians. They had become Christians. So there's, there's going to be a lot of Hebrew and tabernacle and temple symbolism in here that the Jews would have got like that. And most of you here will be familiar enough to know what it is, but if not, we'll cover it quick enough that you can get the idea of the story. So here, it opens up to these Hebrew Christians, and it says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have what? Confidence. We have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. Now, that was a shocking phrase because the most holy place or the holy of holies was a place surrounded by a thick curtain that only a high priest went in one time a year to be in the presence of God. And he didn't do it until he went through all of his ceremonial washings of himself and of his clothing and of his utensils, the sprinkling of blood of bulls and of goats and on and on and on and on because he had to be perfect, holy, and right in God's sight in order to step into the holy holies. And I doubt any of them stepped in with confidence. If you stepped in and weren't considered holy before the Lord, you would die. And so I have to feel that there was some excitement about being chosen as a high priest and some fear because if it doesn't go right, I'm a dead man. But here he's telling these Jewish people, we have confidence to enter this most holy place by the blood of Jesus. Not the blood of bulls and goats, but the blood of Jesus. By a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body. Again, they would understand the symbolism. A curtain surrounded the most holy place. A high priest went in only one time a year. And that curtain was physically ripped by God from top to bottom. But it was spiritually ripped through Jesus' body. His, the curtain of his body was torn and ripped. And so we have access into the Holy of Holies anytime, every day, 24-7, could actually live in the presence of God. Then it says, And since we have a great priest, Jesus, over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance, that word could be confidence, with the full assurance that faith brings. Having our hearts sprinkled, now, again, here's the symbolism. They sprinkled blood to cleanse everything, and they washed everything with ceremonial washings as well. So we're going to put both those together right here. 
we, we have full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. You and I must allow Jesus' cleansing to be a reality in our lives. We must not live another day with a guilty conscience. We have to stop. We have to stop living with a guilty conscience. And it would be good for us to quit doing things that create a guilty conscience. But we have to stop. We have to stop having a guilty conscience. And we've had our bodies washed with pure water. This is symbolizing what the high priest would have to go through. And now you and I can step in boldly into the presence of God anytime. In fact, I'll go as far as this. We can live in his presence. We are to live in his presence, which was something that was unheard of uh, only one time a year, the high priest would do that. And then it says, let us hold unswervingly, in other words, with confidence, the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. He who promised is faithful. See, it all hinges upon he who promised. I just want to pause for a second. Aren't you glad it doesn't hinge on you or me? There's a point, I think it's in Timothy, where God's saying, this happens and then that happens, this happens and that happens, and, and it's, it's like one for the other. But then he says the line, totally throws it off its course and says, and if you are faithless, and you expect the reply to be, then God's going to be faithless. But it says, and if you are faithless, faithless, our God is faithful. I went, oh, thank you. If we are faithless, God is faithful. So here's our assignment for the week. Here's the verses that we went over. And we need to meditate on these verses. Do we have that slide there? Meditate on these verses. Now, these verses, you can take a picture of it, you can write it down again, you can get on Facebook later today and you'll see that slide. I just want to tell you, because I've been doing this, these verses will take a staggering, it takes me anyway, to read them thoughtfully and slowly, four minutes and 12 seconds. Okay? Four minutes and 12 seconds. I know you look at all that and go, Oh, man, where am I going to find time to do all this? Four minutes and 12 seconds, okay? Now, I say, I don't know where I would carve out four minutes and 12 seconds every day to read these verses. If that were true, it's not, but if that were true, you're too busy, okay? You need to do something to relax a little bit. Now, I will tell you this. You might read through these, and there might be one or two of them that just captivate you. That's how the Holy Spirit can move on you. You read one and say, oh, that's good, that's good. Then you read another and go, oh, my goodness, that. That's what I need to hear. Well, hone in on that one. Maybe that's the one or two that you really want to really keep pouring into you over and over and over again. And these things help build confidence. But I do, I do want to give a little bit of a challenge here because, and, and I'm wired up the same thing you're wired up of, so it's real easy for me too. I could be sitting out there and have somebody say, you know, you know, read these things once a day. And I could be going, oh yeah, I'm going to do that. And then next week, if I would ask, how many of you read those? You know, read what? Oh, you know, the things we, huh? <laughs> you, know, you ever done that before? I have. And so but I want to encourage you. Uh, these things help us grow, help us stay on the same path as a family, as a family of believers heading in the same direction. These things will help build your confidence, not in you, but in the God in you. And then he can answer your prayers because you pray now in faith and confidence. Again, not that you're wonderful, but you're praying in faith and confidence because he's wonderful and you're something different than you realize you are. You're a new creation in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. You have been made the righteousness of God in Christ. And the scripture says, now to him,
who's able to do exceeding abundantly above all who can ask, think, or imagine according to his power that is at work within us.